It's been deeply heartbreaking to witness the recent events unfold in Palestine. One way we can all help is by supporting and amplifying Palestinian social enterprises who are at the forefront of serving local communities. West Bank and Palestine. Let's talk about West Bank and Gaza. Gaza suffer from 72% of unemployment. You know. In, in Palestine, in West Bank, there is almost 30-something percent of unemployment. The unemployment for women is higher than the unemployment for men because of cultural circumstances. First of all, like mobility is not that easy. You know, you never know when the checkpoint is going to, to appear because they have these new system like they call it flying checkpoints. They come and they create a checkpoint here and maybe after an hour, it's another checkpoint. So there's no prediction to even organize or alternative routes. Hello and welcome. I'm Shiza, your host of Reinvision Business and co-founder of UpEffects. If you're new to our work, over the last five years, we've loved amplifying and supporting business models that prioritize equity, conservation, and economic empowerment. We're now advancing this work through our Reinvision Business Podcast. This series will highlight the emerging need for responsible trade that uplifts communities frequently left behind. In each episode, we'll invite thought leaders to deconstruct our current systems, and with their help, we'll spotlight models that are reinvisioning business. Together, we'll unearth a blueprint for an economy redesign. In this conversation, Dr. Habashi helps shine a light on the power of creating dignified jobs for the women of Palestine. Dr. Habashi is a full professor at the University of Oklahoma in the Department of Human Relations. Her research is with children and indigenous populations examining socialization, national identity, education, political participation, resistance, and children's rights-based approaches in policy and research. She is also the founder and executive director of Child's Cup Full, a non-profit organization empowering refugee and low-income women in Palestine through training and employment. Together, they produce educational and ethical fashion products for the Zeki Learning and Darza brands. Let me start by saying welcome to Reinvision Business. What an honor to have you here, Dr. Habeshi. Really, really grateful for your time and presence today. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate your interest and, you know, interest in our in my work and our organization. As I've highlighted in the introduction, you wear many different hats. You're a professor, you're a researcher, founder, author, and I'm sure many other hats that, you know, you haven't covered in your public sphere. But I guess I'd like to start with your position as a professor and in particular your area of research. What were the collection of moments that led you to identifying this as the focus of your research and what has been your journey so far? So my one of my research focus is children's political socialization. And um, I, you know, while I was doing my PhD, I was like, what I'm going to focus on, you know, your struggle, which area you want to focus on. And I always wonder how children become politically aware. What is the condition, the circumstances that make the child aware, to, you know, about their political situation? 
you study all of these theoretical development of child's development, and you, they never mention any political uh, dimension of child's development or how they understand politics. They, it's all of the theories is based on progression, okay? But when it comes to discussion of politics or how much they're aware of politics, they don't give us an explanation. So I'm like, I'm Palestinian. So I was reflecting on how I've learned, learned politics outside these spheres of theories. Like, you know, you start questioning why they missed that part or why they're envisioning a particular definition of childhood or what they have to learn as a children. So I'm like saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to understand why Palestinian children particular, I wasn't familiar with a lot of other societies, are very politically aware about their political situation, about the political narrative. You know, you ask anybody, any child, six years old, four years old, in a refugee camp where you come from, they will not tell you I come from the, I'm from that refugee camp. They tell they name the name of the village, their grandfather, you know, was expelled. And then they will tell you where they're living in the refugee camp. And you know, these small nuances, you start questioning how come children understand these kind of politics? You know, they understand why they were expelled, why their grandfathers were expelled from you know, their, their villages before 1948. So that's why I started becoming interested in, in uh, children's political socialization and understanding why these theories don't capture it. So that was my aha moment, and I started doing my research, and I realized there's a lot of things beside the theories that does not capture children's political socialization. And most of the theories that talks about children's political knowledge are based on curriculum. The government is telling the schools what they have to teach their children in terms of citizenship and all of these kind of things. But they don't explore how these elements of political knowledge are from the community, from their daily experience of children, of children, you know, seeing Israeli soldier with a gun in front of their house. All of these things that trigger political knowledge that is not captured in literature. That's why I decided to focus on that area. I'm doing a children's political socialization throughout history, starting through during British mandate. So what Palestinians' children's understanding of the political situation during the mandate, British mandate, then the existence of Israel, then Oslo, 1967, Oslo, and now. So I'm trying to figure out the progression of children political socialization over time. And I'm like, I've like, there is things, you know, they didn't conceptualize it as political socialization, but there were factors in their political socialization. And I'm like fascinated by it. It's, it's you know, we, we need to rename things to understand it better. You've touched mainly on because your area of focus is has been children and the way that they grow up and the way that literature portrays their experiences. A lot of it has not been covered. I understand that you're also looking at women, um, yes. in particular, um, women that are living in Palestine. I'd love to hear a little bit about what has been the impact 
in terms of the economic opportunities that ha- have been available previously or have been stripped away because of the situation in Palestine and the violence that is inflicted on Palestinians. Um, are there any moving stories or striking details that you've uncovered in your research? West Bank and Palestine. Let's talk about West Bank and Gaza. Gaza suffer from 72% of unemployment. You know, in, in Palestine, in West Bank, there is almost 30 something percent of unemployment. The unemployment for women is higher than the unemployment for men because of cultural circumstances. First of all, like mobility is not that easy. You know, you never know when the checkpoint is going to, to appear because they have these new system, like they call it flying checkpoints. They come and they create a checkpoint here and maybe after an hour, it's another checkpoint. So there's no prediction to even organize or alternative routes. This is, it's, you know, you need to be on your toes all the time. So that creates con, uh, constraint for women to finding jobs, you know, and it's not like there's a lot of opportunities out there to say that they're not seeking. There's also little opportunities, but in addition, you have political circumstances that does not help to, you know, to encourage this, uh, the woman to go and look for a job. They know that there's no job opportunities there, you know. In my organization, we have daily people knocking on our door asking for jobs. Like that's the, the desperate need for women to find jobs. So, and there's a lot of organization are reaching out to find opportunities to help them with that. So in my research, I found that mothers are, are so this is what's interesting about uh, the research. We always assume that we're, only one dimension. Humans are one dimension. The way you describe me, I carry multiple heads. Fabulous. Children create, they have multiple dimensions of identity, multiple dimension of how they present themselves to different people and how they think. The same thing with women. They have multiple dimension of their role. They are protector. They are resilience. They're, they're, you know, they're, you know, the cornerstone of the stone of the family. They're also the community cornerstone of the community. They have multiple dimension that they're trying to navigate all the time how they can be and survive at the same time. So from my research is that the interaction is with the woman is within a context of the community, not as an individual. And that's what it makes it interesting because she's multidimensional. And I would like to perceive her as a multidimensional person. I love that framing. And I think that's largely missing in how we talk about children, how we talk about women, how we talk about individuals in our in our conversations and um, in, in the way we build our systems and structures as well. Um, 
I know that you touched on your organization as well, that yeah. you're regularly um, approached for jobs, um, in, in particular by women that are seeking employment opportunities. Can you help us understand a little bit more about your organization, which Child's Cupful was established in 2009 as a student organization? Is that right? Yes. That's true. So this is where my research and my my commitment to the Palestinian community. And uh, so you do this research um, and it, it makes me excited doing research. It's like, you know, I'm allowed, my, my synapses started work, it starts working. But at the same time, it's an individual exercise. I do it. Of course, some people would read it. Some people would not but it's mainly an individual exercise. And I hope I will impact policy, but I'm highly doubted impacting policy because of my area of research. But the way I thought about it, so how I can help the community, how I can help the child to and help the community at the same time because of my research. So I looked at this multi-dimension. So it's multi-dimension way of thinking about my research. I said, I need to do something with my community. So we started with uh, fundraising for after-school program in refugee camp in Jenin. And after two years, it was after-school program. United Nations have an education system that is so weird. Is They have every school has two shifts. One from 7 to noon, there is a group of students. Another shift is from noon 30, from 12.30 to 3.30. So there's no education literally in the system. It, what, what they provide is that if you're, you, you can make it, you can make it on your own. But there's no education eight hours a day that this child can get all of the support they need. So we did a, uh, we used to do a fundraising for after school program for that refugee camp and help children after school to get some additional tutoring. You know, that was my simple thing for the first three years. I'm like, okay, we did fundraising, so a small fundraising with my students, selling cookies, all of these good stuff. After, like, I started knowing the mothers of the children, they, and they approached me and said, we need jobs. Give us jobs. Will will help our children with education. You know, when you when you give us jobs, we can help the whole community. And I'm like, I have no clue what you're under. I'm like zero. I'm like an academic. I'm I have no clue. But they challenged me, and I say, okay, all right, they're right. You know, because that's what I'm talking about in my research. It's a community, and they're saying we're presenting you with the challenge. And take it on. I'm like, okay, let me do that. And I said, let, we need to find jobs for the women. And you know, my area of uh, of background is education psychology. And I said, let's do educational toys from surplus. We pick up the uh, that stock fabric and let's do that. And this is the way we started. And it was all of it driven by my students. And look where we are. It started with $4,000. That's incredible. And 
the success of uh, the toys that were created by these women led to the creation of another brand. Is that right? Yes. yes. Um, which is Darza. Help us understand yeah. more about the work happening yes. there. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So the first brand is Zaki Learning, which is the toys. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second brand is Darza. So the point is when people, you know, the community recognized that you're hiring women to do the job. You get more women asking for jobs. Then we said, okay, all right. So our market is limited with the education. Let's do something to do with our heritage, which is Tatris, which is the Palestinian embroidery. This is where Derza started. We started another brand, which is Derza, which is bags, shoes, Palestinian-made, embroidery. Everything is Tatris. And, uh, and it, it, it's, it's picking up. People are recognizing our brand. We, during COVID, we had 17,000 work hours provided for women. Around 26 women got jobs. And we had more than 45 entrants helping us. That's absolutely incredible. Um, Are you able to describe what that impact looks like for the women on a day-to-day basis? One thing about the impact is women can provide for them, for their family. But also, they can plan. Let me give you an example. So I'm a professor. I get a salary every month, yes? If I want to buy something, you know, I know that I have money coming, income every month. And I can plan for a travel, for, you know, for purchasing something. I can have that plan. What we created, that we gave them not jobs, but we gave security. And that's what I'm proud of. Like, that's why I'm working hard. I don't want them, like, I, I want security in my job. I want to give, it, to give them the same. They, I have holidays. They should have holidays, you know? They work seven hours a day, not eight hours, because it's fair. Their work condition is fabulous. They have holidays, like anything I'm getting, I want to extend it to them. I want them to have security, ownership of the process, you know, love what they're doing. And I think that's what we created. It's the motivation they have. The impact in the in the community, like it's we we train like two days ago, we're uh, training a new group, and one of our leading artisans said, I called her, I said, you know, we need to do this sample, we might get a product, blah blah blah, but what what's how you're doing? And I said. You know, I, I hope you're, you know, working with new, new 
group of women, and she said, yes, I've trained somebody who's deaf in the community. And I'm like, I started having goosebumps. And I said, Rahaf, make sure that all of the people you, you work with, you hire, you know, all of this, people who need the job. And if you can, you know, take more people with challenges, disabilities, please do that. So the, the impact is, it's, of course, we give them money. And of course, we, the, we, we try to provide security and all of this. But the impact is more of our artisans are extending their skills and bringing more people. And that's what's, what's, what's moving. You know, when I hear, I talk with our artisan, how you're doing, oh, I'm working with this, I'm working with that. That makes the whole project valuable, I think. I mean, it's truly inspiring what you've built and some of the stories that you've just shared. It's very rare to see businesses implement um, the kind of practices that you've just ex- you've just described, in particular those that align with the practice of fair trade. You and I recognize that creating economic opportunities for women it's not just impact on their lives, but it's it truly benefits society and the communities at large. And the wider economic benefit of that is hugely profound and is largely missing from our economic systems. Women are often excluded when we think about business and when we think about how our sectors operate. What are some of the challenges that you've had to overcome whilst convincing partners and supporting organizations that this is actually a need that needs to be served and needs to be funded and resourced for us to see the benefits that we're all hoping for in society? So, so there is, I'm trying to change a few narratives, okay? We are a nonprofit. Most of the people who have sustainable companies are for profit. So uh, everybody's saying that initially, oh, you should make it for profit, which is, I'm like, I, I don't need to make it for profit. It's for nonprofit. I want to make sure that the women have their own, like, you know, they have the same rights I have. I don't want to reach a point that, they are, that they're going to be exploited. The money should go back to the project. The money should not go back to the stakeholder. That's one narrative I would like to change because we are very good at, you know, naming sustainability. And we should because sustainability has three dimensions, the economic, the social, and the environment. So I'm, I'm, we're trying to touch on the three points. We're very, we've been very successful with the social and the economic. And with the environment, we're very good with the Zeki learning. But, uh, and we're, we're trying to do be good with the Derza by sourcing everything locally, especially with the leather. It's, it's not, we're not trying to uh, bring it from any other country. But the business, what, God, I'm trying. So the challenges we've been facing for the few, uh, you know, since we established is that most of the women we work with, they don't have the skills that we need. 
And there's some demands in the market for certain things that we don't have the resources to build the skills. Most of the people have investors, so you need money to make money. We did not, we don't have, we, all of the money goes back because we, we give them living wages and we make sure everything, you know, they have the right living conditions, working conditions. That is a challenge because we don't put money in investing in, in machines, in training in certain product, which limits our way of producing stuff. So that's a huge challenge for us. And we're trying to find people who would support us with that area. But meantime, we're trying to be innovative. You know, if somebody asks us for something, we say, oh, look at this product. We can produce something. We can give them alternative. We, don't we will not try to push them away. Immediately, we give them an alternative that could be more stunning than the one they gave us until we figure out what we need to do. We know what is like, missing in our production line. But when, when we talk with partners, like for example, we're talking with a Canadian uh, company, uh, it's called City Soap, and they're trying, they want specific things and we gave them alternatives. We always try to give them alternatives so we can you know, keep jobs coming to our center. I love that. In terms of building an organization in the West Bank, a lot of the women that you are supporting have historically endured marginalization, um, oppression, economic exclusion, and this is still happening on, on a very present level. Most of us take you know basic things like being able to register an enterprise and start a company or an organization because we we've identified a need that needs to be solved through the means of trade can you help us understand what is it like building an organization in the west bank i think you need to have passion and compassion to build an organization so i got for example we're registered in the u.s as a nonprofit, and it's easy. You have a form, you have a checklist, 12 pages checklist, 14 pages form. So you know every step, what you're doing, your checklist, the whole thing. To build an organization in the West Bank, nothing clear. There's no checklist. They will tell you, come tomorrow. You come tomorrow. The guy did not show up. Nothing structured. It takes forever. Lack of structure. Sorry, the Palestinian Authority. I apologize. But things are not structured. That you, you know, the way I'm used to. So that is a hurdle. Okay. Then you want to, for example, when we started Derza, when we started doing uh, embroidery on on shoes and boots and product. We had to talk with the community. Do you think this is appropriate? You know, we cannot come and do a design that the community might not appreciate it. And actually we got all of the support because we had the support of the community. So it, we, then you have the skill set, okay, that we need, which we had to identify somebody who actually 
who's Rahaf uh, Mahmoud, she travels at least 40 minutes to come to the center each day. Initially, it was, you know, we, we had to create some credibility with the family that, you know, we're credible, we're safe organization, all of this. We would like your daughter to work with us. So you have to create, not logistic, but you have to create credibility in the community. They could trust you. So we had to navigate all of these good stuff. Then in logistic terms, you have to do identify suppliers that you could rely on and they could be flexible in, you know, can I take this product? I'll pay you after 20 or 30 days. You build all of these good relationships that actually we've been very successful, you know, touch wood. But logistically, in terms of initially building the organization, one of the biggest hurdles was completing the paperwork with the PA. And what is it like transporting these products outside of the West Bank to customers? So I would like to do something. If, if I can reach that in this organization, it would be un, unheard of. So Darza, okay? Darza brand, which is we do shoes, bags, accessories, the whole thing. I want you to imagine you're in the north of the West Bank, okay? You're in Zabab de Jenin. You're working with nine villages, okay, in, in Jenin. Traditionally, going from Ramallah to Jenin, it was easy. Maximum an hour and a half. Not that lucky anymore, all right? Political situation, all of these good things. I used to go from Jerusalem to Tul Karim and come back the same day. That's impossible now. I want you to imagine this. We are in the north. The shoemaker is in the south. The lady who does the embroidery, she works with nine villages. To pick up our product, the embroidery, it's, there's nine villages. You have logistically to organize this, to pick up the embroidery. You cannot drop, take them and take the cab and go down south because it's four hours to five hours. Not because of the distance, because of the political situation, if you're lucky to put it. The challenge is with the shipment, before shipping overseas, is, is doing the transportation within. So since Darza mission is to hire women and empower the local economy, everything is local. It takes three days from a piece of embroidery from a village to go to the shoemaker. You're talking about a country you could drive if everything is in peace in four hours. But if political situation, it takes three days. My dream is to do a movie called A Journey of a Shoe. How it starts in one of the villages, then Rahaf in Mahmoud picks it up, then we have a connection in Jenin with a store. So some people drop it to the store. In Mahmoud take it, then take it to Wasil, which is FedEx, another uh, office. FedEx take it from there to Hebron. The shoemaker picks it up from the office, take it to the shoemaker, 
and the shoemaker needs to finish each pair takes three days to complete. But we did, we're like, that's our mission to over, like, we exist. That's the goal. We exist as Palestinian. Even if you're going to put all of the obstacles, we're going to exist. That's what we want to tell everyone. One of the key ways um, that isn't really presented as a narrative, but really should be, is the supporting of Palestinian-owned businesses and businesses and organizations that are actively supporting Palestinian locals. And so how we do that in terms of whether we use our wallets or we use our platforms or we use our voices, but I think it's very important that we find a way to actually direct finances and resources and support for these enterprises because they are actually the lifeblood of the economy and a big source of survival for Palestinian people. So what is... So consumers are used to buy things cheap, okay, generally. They're willing to stretch their, their pocket for sustainability, which I appreciate that. But they, they need to understand that the Palestinian, like, imagine the cost when they come to us and they say, your prices is, is not, you know, it's, it's expensive, but they don't know what, kind, what the cost to make that happen. You know, how much it costs us before it gets, and they don't know, like, we don't get a margin because of all of this situation. So I, th- I think everything you do in life is political, you know? Where you put your money is political. Where you put your time is political. It's not only your money, your time. So I think what we need to do is to to support Palestinian businesses and ask the right questions. Educate yourself as a consumer about what you're buying and and the Palestinians, why you're buying from them. Educate, and this is, you know, you don't need to be political to purchase a Palestinian product, but you could educate yourself about yourself, you know, why they are famous with olive oil, you know, why there is specific embroidery for every region, you know, embroidery trees, every area, every village has their own motifs. Educate yourself about these small things. Like, I have an intern who's, uh, you know, we're doing an archive for Tatris. So when a a customer wants a product, they could come and say, I want that motif. This motif is from that village. And the name of the motif is this. Educate yourself on these small things. These motifs has been around for more than 3,000 years. So I think they need to invest in time and and money and also ask the right questions. And that's why we're having this conversation. <laughs> um, and I really appreciate you sharing um, 
some of the struggles, I'm sure there's far greater struggles that you endure while running the organization and keeping it um, alive during these times, but helping us get a small glimpse into um, the challenges of building an organization of this um, within this environment um, and really appreciate the work that you're doing. I guess my closing question here would be, what happens when our economy leaves behind women? And what happens when organizations like Child's Cup Full takes steps and builds initiatives and really leads the way to build with and for women? I think it would not be sustainable anymore to leave women behind. even if you think about it in terms of research and data, they are one of the biggest, you know, 50% of your customers are women, regardless of your business, what kind of business. So it makes no sense that you expect them to be consumers, but not contributors to the economy. Uh, And they lose a lot of talents. I think women provide a lot of perspectives that we miss. And let me, let me give you an example. So when we talk with, uh, when we have a sample development idea, I'll give you for Zaki Learning, for example. We have a, a book, it's solar system book, which talks about all of these planets. And a simple thing, I'm like, I said to one of the artisans, I'm saying, we need to do these this science activity in a book. And these are the solar system. And uh, and look at NASA website, gave her the link, do this. She came and designed the book and the planets. The talent she provides, this woman has no degree in art, graphic design, anything you can imagine, zero. The talent she she has is beyond anybody's imagination. So when the economy does not recognize women, they miss on opportunities and talents. I'm like, everybody comes with a talent, and the point is how you can capture it and share it. You know, when you share it with, you know, you have share it with other people. That was really beautifully explained with a really fantastic example of the really, really important work that you're doing. Are there any closing messages or thoughts that you would like to leave our listeners with? First of all, I appreciate the opportunity. And I like that you're taking this initiative. You know, I think more people should do it because if I'm doing it and you're doing it and other people are doing it, we become a collective. And we, we shouldn't be an example or an anomaly. We should be, you know, look at these group of women rather than, you know, outliers in the, in, the whole, in the big pictures. I think we need to support each other. I think, and this is what's cool about it. Like, let me give you an example. Uh, I'm like, there's a woman I'm working with. Any opportunity comes to me, I pass it on. And she does the same, and we don't think about it because 
it's it's become part of our uh, daily habit is we support each other and that's why i think we managed to to be recognized is because we get all of these support and we pay it back so i think the more we get support and we share that i think we can make i don't i don't believe in the word difference but we can challenge the status quo definitely and how can we support your work and how can our listeners learn more about Darza and Zeki Learning and all the wonderful work that you're engaged in? So, of course, we would like, you know, the listeners to purchase from us and all of these good stuff. You know, come, come to the website and look at our product, but also like talk about us. But if you, if if you think of a product we don't have, email us and we can do it for you. If you think you're, you are a graphic designer and you can help us, come and help us. Like, you know, we have interns we never thought we need. Now we, we're like, you know, we could, you know, this, the individual comes and say, we could do this. Yeah, I never thought about it. Let's do it. So... I think there is more than one way to help is, of course, we want you to buy and all of this, but talk about us, you know, email us, tell us what you think. And I think we'll be fabulous. Thank you so much, Dr. Habeshi. Really appreciate you being here and for sharing more about your work. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. We'll be back on the first Wednesday of every month with a new episode. To ensure you don't miss out, please subscribe to Reinvision Business on your favorite podcasting platform, whether that is Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or something else. If you've enjoyed our episode, please leave us a five-star review so that others can learn about Reinvision Business. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter with the handle UpEffect for updates on the next episode. Until next month.